All right, Arlene and I are thankful to be here. Uh, you've got something very special going here at Calvary. And it's palpable, and I hope it's encouraging to hear that from an objective outside source. And we have the opportunity and privilege to visit and encourage and be encouraged in quite a few congregations uh, here and there in the U.S. and abroad, and we're just so thankful for God's faithful people. Now, one of the things that we as God's people need to be doing on a routine basis is we need to be lifting our eyes to the big picture. And remember, it was to his own disciples, those who were closest to him and those who knew him the best, people like you and me, that Jesus on a number of occasions said, lift your eyes to the big picture. <clears throat> and it's easy for us, you know, I go jogging and I find myself looking down you know, kind of trying to play it safe. And it's helpful occasionally to lift my eyes and see the sun rising and to take in the big picture. So uh, we want to look uh, this morning and remind ourselves of some familiar and uh, fundamental truths as it relates to our mission as the people of God. Now, all of us, I think, are familiar with mission statements. I know our organization, Pioneers, has a mission statement that many of us have memorized uh, where you work, you probably have a mission statement. The church, doubtless, has a mission statement here. Uh, but let, let me remind you of a couple of them. They're supposed to be concise and compelling and comprehensive. Uh, Tesla's mission statement is what? To accelerate the world's transition to renewable energy. And Elon Musk is feverishly working away to make sure that that happens in its various forms. Are you familiar with McDonald's mission statement? Uh, as you munch on your Big Mac, here's the idea. To make delicious, feel-good moments easy for everyone. Does that sound like a bit of a commentary on American culture? <laughs> it does to me. Delicious, feel-good moments easy for all of us. You could learn a bit. I used to teach American culture abroad. I could have used that statement as an illustration. Okay, uh, whose mission statement was this? To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Harvard University. Okay, <clears throat> founded in 1636 with the purpose of emphasizing Christian character formation above all else. So, uh, 80 years after Harvard's founding, a group of pastors uh, were concerned that it had drifted uh, too far from its original mission. So in 1718, they founded a new school to be a stronghold of Christian higher education, and they called that one Yale. And the motto was light and truth, obviously a reference to the gospel message. So uh, obviously these schools produce many good outcomes, uh, but the point is that drift happens. And you know, even among God's people, drift can happen. A recent Barna survey indicated that 50% of churchgoers don't even know what the Great Commission is. Another 37% have a vague notion. And that leaves just a, a minority of churchgoers here in this country who could even 
tell you that the Great Commission is found in the Gospel of Matthew. So drift can happen. And we see it in the pages of Scripture as well. The Lord Jesus has given us a mission statement, and there may be other ways and other passages obviously shedding light on it. Uh, but one of the classic expressions of the mission that God has given to us is dear to us here at Calvary, and it's found in the Great Commission. I'm sure you have it memorized. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Now this morning, we're not going to uh, focus on the content of the Great Commission so much. If we were, we would potentially have a whole message on the authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We could have another message on the activity, go and make disciples. We could have a third message in a series on the arena, all nations, all ethnicities of the world, the ethne. We could have a fourth message on the allegiance. What does it mean to have an identity as a Christ follower? Baptizing them into the name of Jesus. And another message on the attributes, teaching them to obey, not just part, but everything that I have taught you to be wholehearted disciples. And we could talk about the accompaniment that we can be reassured in a God-sized task that he's never leaving us alone. I will be with you to the very end. But this morning we want to touch ever so briefly on the context and the importance of our mission statement. Now we say we call it the Great Commission. Is it still great in our hearts and minds? Practically speaking, and I just want to offer you ever so briefly a number of reasons, many could be given, but kind of summarize and refresh our own sense of direction as God's people in these latter days of his redemptive plan. And the first item I would like to draw your attention to, first reason why the commission is indeed still great, is that the great commission reflects the plan of God and the theme of the Bible. The Great Commission reflects God's plan and indeed the whole thrust and theme of this inspired book that we hold dear. Now, uh, a number of years ago, as China was reopening to the outside world, I was visiting uh, a dear friend and coworker there. And uh, suddenly he got a phone call and he looked at me and he said, hey, uh, there's this class of 400 really sharp Chinese uh, college student, uni university students, and they're having an assembly in three hours and they would love for you to speak. I kind of swallowed and I said, what do they want? What, what, what do you think I should be speaking on? He said, they want you to speak on what is the theme of the Bible? And I thought, boy, I better kind of collect a few thoughts here. But I also thought, wow, what a huge opportunity. Here, here are China's best and brightest at that stage, hungry, spiritually hungry to hear about this book that had made such an incredible impact on the Western world. And what is its theme? And what does it mean? And so I, I collected a few thoughts, and that evening of just a 
three or four hours later, I unpacked the theme as best I could articulate it. And I said, like any book, the Bible has an introduction. The first 11 chapters of the Bible are basically introduction. And then in chapter 12, the main drama gets underway. And then at the end, we see the culmination of all the drama and all the opposition and all the characters involved. And in the end, there's a tremendous climax and celebration. And I said, the main character at the beginning is an Iraqi guy named Abram. And God speaks to Abram and he says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to use you as a conduit of my blessings to all the ethnicities and nations of the world. And Abraham was a man who believed God and he stepped out in faith and went to a place he didn't even know where he was going and that was the beginning of an amazing drama and the rest of the Bible is the unfolding of the contract that God had established with his people to be a nation of priests and what does a priest do? A priest stands in the gap on behalf of the people between them and God and if a whole nation is being called to be a nation of priests what is their purpose? It's to stand in the gap on behalf of the other nations of the world. And with mixed results and a lot of failures along the way, eventually the seed of Abraham with a capital S finally arrived. And he is the Messiah and he was the creator and it was God's son. And he is the Messiah, not just for the Jewish people, but for all the peoples of the world, including the vast empire of China with your thousands of years of history. And it was just like you could hear a pin drop, and then they started passing up little notes with questions. We had a Q&A time, and just dozens and dozens of questions, and many of them were signed unanimous because they, they, they didn't want to be identified. You know, it was, it was still a very strongly communist Location And I took these strips of paper home after that hours of discussion with these 400 students and I typed up the questions and it was just such a blessing. And I've kept that over the years. And here's a couple of them. Could I believe in Christianity and Buddhism at the same time? How do you understand? Jesus said after someone hits you left face, you can let he to hit right face. I want to buy a Bible like yours, Chinese English. Can you tell me where I can buy it? Signed, Unanimous. Could you sing a church's song for us now? And I, uh, not the best singer, so I invited someone else <laughs> that was on our team to sing a little song. Do God love peace? Why do war cross human history? If we have the God, then why we need government? Do we ask that question maybe sometimes? If Christianity is true, how about Buddhism? How about Islam? Are they untrue? How to read the Bible? How to find out the value of the Bible? Can we find strength in it? How can a man who do not believe in Christ become a Christian? What a golden opportunity. And you know what the key to this experience was? These young students were realizing that they were part of a larger drama. That history has meaning. That there is a plot line being developed by a master author, a master artist, and that each one of our lives has a part to play in that drama, real life drama. And as they realized that and that idea started to dawn on them in such a godless, secular environment, it started 
filling them with a sense of hope and of significance and of meaning. And so when God called Abram, he was being called into a bigger story and he had the privilege of being at the early stages of it. And when Paul speaks of his own calling, he often doesn't refer to the Great Commission, even though Luke was one of his traveling companions and Luke documents a couple of versions of the Great Commission. Guess what he refers to? He refers, refers back to the original Great Commission. In Genesis chapter 12... And in 18 and in chapter 22 and 26 and 28 where God makes a promise to the patriarchs, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, that I'll bless you. And he unpacks that a bit and then he says, but I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a freeway of blessing. You're not going to be a cul-de-sac. God wasn't forgetting the world. He was implementing a plan to reach the world with his compassionate love. He had the world on his heart when he spoke to Abram. And that covenant that we sometimes call the Abrahamic covenant was God's initiative, not man's initiative, reaching out with an idea like they would have done, other tribes would have done with their gods. And it was a covenant, a binding thing that God cannot lie about, Hebrews tells us. It's an anchor for the soul. We're talking about God's purposes for the nations and his, his plan. It was long range. It, it had thousands of years to play out and trillions of years in the future to rejoice and celebrate the results of God's faithfulness and cosmic impact. And God bound himself to say, I'm going to work through you, not just do it all myself or through angels which was, in a sense, taking a massive, massive risk. Okay, is your heart aligned with the the plan of God and the theme of the Bible, which I believe is God glorifying himself? This is what I told the students. The theme of the Bible is God glorifying himself by blessing all nations on earth, including you Chinese, through Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. And the rest is the story of how he does that. Okay, number two, the Great Commission is still great because it reveals the heart of Christ for this age. Jesus is our savior, presumably. The vast majority of us here in this room have experienced the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We owe him everything. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead And then on multiple occasions, with some variety of combinations of people, there was basically one thing on his mind, one more thing that he wanted to accomplish after those three years of powerful ministry and miracles, and that is to make sure that his disciples understood that they had a mission to accomplish. And that as they had been watching him and learning and taking some baby steps, now the baton is being passed to you, disciples. And to those that you will disciple. And if you had a dear friend and mentor, not to mention your Savior, Christ the Lord, if you had a friend who was put to death and you watched him die, and then a few days later he rose from the dead and he kept talking about this one thing, and then he he ascended into heaven right in front of you after talking about it again. What would you be thinking about the rest of your life? The mission that your Savior has given you to do. So there are actually five renditions. You know, we often think of Matthew 28, 18 to 20 as being the primary one. 
But on five different occasions, arguably, uh, Jesus unpacked the mission of the disciples in John 20 with an emphasis on the model, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. This is on the first evening after he rose from the dead. There wasn't a lot of small talk. A little bit, and then they plunged in to, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Then eight days later, Mark 16, the magnitude. Don't stop here. Go to, into all the world to places that you don't even know about yet, to the Maoris in the South Pacific, to a place called Mongolia someday, to a place called Syria, etc. And you know, it's kind of interesting that uh, I think all but one of the apostles ended up dying in a foreign land. And then you've got the method in Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples. That was a week later. And then you have Luke 24, 44 to 49, with an emphasis on the message, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was another two weeks later. And then Acts 1-8, just a short time after that, out on the Mount of Olives, you will receive power. God is saying, this is the mechanism, this is the means. The power isn't going to be your own. It's going to be the power of God, of the Holy Spirit that's enabling you to do this. So uh, here we are. It's like, it's like the Great Commission was the first thing, first thing Jesus talked about after he rose from the dead, and it was the second thing he talked about, and it was the third thing he talked about, it was the fourth thing he talked about, and it was the last thing he talked about. What do you think was on the Savior's mind, and what do you think is on his mind today? He wants the bride prepared for the wedding feast that is coming ahead. Okay, number three, the Great Commission is given to all of us. And I, I just want to expand a little bit on this. You know, I think sometimes, for, for quite a while, I had kind of had this subconscious impression that the Matthew 28 version of the Great Commission was given to, you know, a room of disciples, you know, maybe 11 or, you know, a few people in there. But no, the Great Commission was given, that version of the Great Commission was given on a mountain in Galilee. And you know, it's fascinating to me that in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul is recounting some of the appearances of Jesus, between the time that he rose from the dead and when he ascended into heaven, he mentions that on one, one occasion, there in verse 6, uh, there were more than 500 people who saw Jesus at the same time. And some of them are, he said, most of them are still with us, though some have fallen asleep. I'm so glad he mentioned that because what, what it has, uh, has, has brought to my attention is that if there was an occasion, which, which there was, where 500 people met with Jesus for several hours or who knows how long, on one occasion, where, where did that happen? I don't think it happened in Jerusalem. I don't think there was a room big enough for 500 people. And besides, how are you going to get 500 people together for a few hours without them knowing in advance that something's going to happen? And that somebody's going to be there. And then you realize that, that there was one occasion where Jesus told the disciples on repeated occasions, he said, go to the mountain in Galilee and I'm going ahead of you and I'm going to meet you there. And you can just imagine the word passing among all his Galilean disciples and friends. And when Jesus walks up and starts talking to them on that mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee, there's more than 500 of his disciples there. And the post-resurrection, Jesus talks about what? The Great Commission, as he's looking across the Galilee, over there to the Gentile countries uh, to the west of the Sea of Galilee, and he's saying, go into the whole world, look at the view, and don't stop until you've reached all the nations and made disciples of all peoples. 
Number four, the Great Commission's completion will be a cause for, for fantastic celebration. Uh, <clears throat> we've alluded to this already. <laughs> and you know what? There's an incredible, incredible. I mean, our minds are going to be blown by the import and the significance and of the beauty. I mean, we've got an incredible choir here and worship team. Can you imagine how that's a microscopic picture of what we're going to be experiencing in a few years' time? Of hundreds of millions of saved people redeemed from all the languages and nations. And as our brother Muhammad prayed here earlier, I sensed that as he switched into his native tongue, Arabic, there was a special joy and a special sort of momentum and vibrancy that entered into his spirit because he was speaking his mother tongue. And we're going to have hundreds of millions of people speaking more than 7,000 languages. And I don't know how many languages have already disappeared that will also be represented there in God's sovereign plan. So Jesus is, you know, when we prepare for a wedding, guess what? We, we normally spend quite a bit of time preparing, especially, you know, the mother of the bride and so forth. Uh, isn't there a movie or two about that kind of thing? And you spend months or weeks and you find the right place and you get the right food and you invite the right people and you set the budget and all this and you get the right dress and so forth. And Jesus has been preparing for 2,000 years for a tremendous banquet. And you know, I think when Jesus talked to his disciples about the celebration that's coming, there was such a joy in his heart and in his face. And he said, he said, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. This is Matthew 8, 11. And I think Luke adds from the north and the south. All four points of the compass, the whole world. And will take their places, their seats at the feast. With who? With Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why? Because these are the three patriarchs to whom the original covenant promise was made. And this celebration is the celebration of the completion of the mission. And all the redeemed from all those nations will be there just enjoying the presence of their savior, their, 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 their groom. And that's what we have to look forward to. And brothers and sisters, I've had the privilege of attending several celebrations in jungle amphitheaters around the world where tribe after tribe for a season was celebrating the 50th anniversary of the arrival of the gospel. And they had hilarious reenactments of the, of the arrival of the first missionaries and splitting their sides with laughter about these strange people and all the stuff they brought. And then they would erupt into thanksgiving and worship and dance for hours, worshiping Jesus because they were so thankful that the gospel message arrived. Praise God. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world and then the end will come. Number five, the Great Commission vision is a sign of a healthy church. A locally engaged congregation, I think, is a healthier church. Now, there may be some really mission-minded churches that are under satanic attack, and those are rough times. So I'm not saying the going is easy, but if you were to like identify 10 really globally mission-minded, Great Commission-minded churches, and 10 churches that didn't care about the Great Commission, you never heard about it, which set is going to be healthier? And one of the reasons God is working so powerfully here at Calvary locally and in your Samaria, your Judea and Samaria, 
is because you're also keeping the uttermost parts in your mind. And it's not a win-lose proposition. It's a win-win proposition. But there is a lot of psychological warfare. We have a real enemy, and he wants to get us distracted. He wants to get us discouraged. He wants to dissuade us from our mission to the world around us. And he uses some techniques, and I'll just mention a few of them here. One is, we've been addressing it today, the idea that missions is peripheral. Uh, there's a main course, you know, that has to do with other things and the comfort level of my life and how well I'm doing and am I prospering or not and so forth. And if you get around to, like, the Great Commission, that's a nice side salad. Another technique that the enemy may use is that you in the West no longer really have a role to play. Okay, you're obsolete, and especially if you send long-termers, you know. And that's part, all these have kernels of truth, because it's easy to see what God is doing around the world and say, you know, maybe we can relax now, but no, let's not relax. You don't relax in the last lap of a race. And when you see God doing so many wonderful things, what does it mot motivate you to do? It motivates us to redouble our efforts and finish the race strong. Another, a third idea that gets around is that everything we do is missions, and there's a kernel of, there, of truth there too. And it partly depends on how we define missions. Yes, everything we do, all that we do glorifies God, and it's part of the mission of the church. But when we talk about missions, I like to think we're talking about a very important, strategic, challenging part of the larger mission, and that is cross-cultural disciple-making and church planning all around the world. Okay, and then another idea is that missions competes with everything. Again, this is a little bit of the idea that if we spend too much on missions or too much emphasis there, then it's going to detract and impoverish our local impact. And I'd like to suggest that actually it's going to be synergistic and very helpful and should be in the whole picture as God calls all of us to our unique roles in that picture. For some people, the idea of short-term ministry, which is wonderful, we celebrate it. I love short-term ministry. It makes a big impact. But there's the idea that we don't have to go long-term anymore. We don't have to really invest our own flesh and blood long-term. And I think that's uh, getting the pendulum a little too far in another direction. Let's do both and wholeheartedly. And then there's the idea that missionaries are holy. They're too holy. I can't aspire to be a missionary like they're super special people, closer to God. Okay, they're like incredibly spiritual and then the other extreme, if the devil can't get you there, he's going to go to the other extreme and say, missionaries are really strange. And they, they dress differently, and they talk differently, and the more time they've spent in other countries and cultures, that probably becomes true. And you think, you know, we, we, people that can't quite make it here, we're going to pack them up and send them off to another country, and hopefully they'll do better there. <laughs> okay, and then another idea is that missions is harmful. We're actually exporting Western culture. And missions is part of colonialism, and it's an expression of imperialism. But is Christianity a Western idea? Is the gospel originating from the West? No, we have been blessed by an Eastern uh, a revelation of God to a Bedouin nomadic tribe, a guy named Abram. And we are the recipients, and now with the global church, we have the joy of taking that same message to the rest of the world. Okay, the final point I'd like to make uh, this morning, and uh, that is that the Great Commission is the great game changer. It's the great cycle breaker. 
it is indeed the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And it still is today. We used to have that chorus when I was a kid, Jesus is the answer for the world today. It's still the case. Jesus is the answer for the whole world and every conundrum that societies and communities and individuals face. Now I can share a lot of wonderful, wonderful facts about what God is doing around the world. I've got a whole list here. 120 years ago, Korea had 20,000 Christians. Today they have more missionaries than they had Christians at that time. Imagine, more missionaries today than there were believers in that whole country 120 years ago. One in 10 Afghans, last I heard, coming to Greece, finds Christ. One of my friends saw 80 Afghans baptized in Jakarta, of all places, in Southeast Asia. The fastest growing evangelical church in the world, or one of them, is Persian, Iranian. Six Persian-speaking churches in the city of Seoul, Korea alone. Who would have thought that the Ayatollah Khomeini would be God's instrument to break open the Iranian people, that great nation, for the reception <laughs> and become one of the fastest growing churches in the world. Hundreds of thousands of Iranians coming to Christ. And I could go on, but let me share a personal story. It was back in 1962 that uh, my mom and dad put some, put some diapers on me and off we went on my first short-term mission trip. <laughs> And we got on a ship called the Oriana. It's long since been decommissioned. And we went, uh, took several weeks to get there, to the world's second largest island, 1,500 miles long, uh, called New Guinea, uh, basking like a Tyrannosaurus Rex on the equator north of Australia. And we arrived in the mountains, and a, a, a few missionaries who had preceded us, Dave and Margie Martin, I visited them just in August up there in Alberta, Canada. And they said to mom and dad, hey, we've just heard about this tribe down in the southern swamps. We don't know much about them. They're called the Sawi. They live in tree houses 40 or 50 feet off the surface of the swamp. Uh, they're probably cannibals and headhunters. It's really hot. There's lots of mosquitoes. It's incredibly humid. It's not cool like it is up here in the highlands. Would you be happy to take the gospel message to them? And I like to think that mom and dad at least glanced momentarily at me before saying, yes, Dave, we'd love to do that. And about two weeks later, dad went in with another missionary who had recently established a gospel beachhead in the neighboring enemy tribe called the Kaigar. And using sign language, he got the help of a few brave Sawi warriors that he encountered to build a little thatch-roofed house about 20 feet by 20 feet and using sign language he tried to communicate to these half a dozen men uh, who were naked and just helping with constructing the, the house that in about 10 days time I'm going to come back with my wife, my little baby, we want to live here, would you move out of the jungle, we want to learn your language and he wasn't sure if they understood but uh, 10 days later after paddling a good 14 hours from the neighboring tribe I rounded the last band, the sun was setting, and they beheld about 400 fully armed Sawi warriors waiting at the junction of those two rivers to welcome us. 
And this is the slide mildewed through years in the tropics that my mother took from the canoe as it slid to a stop in the mud at the feet of this throng. No women and children to be seen. They were hiding to see what was going to happen when these pale, sickly-looking extraterrestrials <laughs> climbed out of that canoe. Was all, all hell going to break loose here in their minds, or what was going to happen? And uh, <clears throat> mom looked at dad, and dad looked at mom, and dad said, Carol, it's too late. We're committed now. <laughs> and he picked me up out of mom's arms, and she followed, and they made their way slipping and sliding up into the midst of this throng, not realizing that in the Sawi culture, if someone came from an outside group not having any weapons in his hands to defend himself and holding a baby, it was a, a guarantee that he was coming with peaceful intentions. And this, someone shouted a signal, Asa, and the drums started to beat, and they began to dance around the three of us. Uh, I know this because I've heard my dad <laughs> recount it. I was only seven months old at the time. And they swept us up to the little notched pole that led up into this house, and they danced around that house. You can see me on the porch there with my Sawi friend, Mabo. And that's where I was raised. And they danced around that house for three days and three nights without stopping. It was our baptism into the world of the Sawi tribe. They were so happy. These Martians had arrived. And they were so interesting. And, you know, I like to say in Orlando, we have Disney World and Universal and Sea World in the jungle. We had the little white baby being bathed. People paid good money and came from long distances through the jungle to see the spectacle. And as mom and dad started learning the language, uh, dad came to the point where he started sharing the story of Jesus. And he came to the part where Jesus, he was in the man house, the warrior house, came to the part where Jesus was betrayed by another man named Judas, one of his friends. And there was a ripple of laughter and jokes were being cracked. And one man said, tell us more about Judas. Dad said, you mean Jesus? He said, no, Judas, he sounds like one of us. He said, I'd love to promise my daughter in marriage to a man like Judas. My dad thought he couldn't believe what he was hearing. And, and he said, why are you saying that? He said, because we, Sawi, we love to commit treachery. We love to befriend somebody from an outside group and make them think that they're an ambassador between our villages or our tribes and eventually kill them and eat them when they're not suspecting it. Tell us more about Judas. Can you imagine... Well, in the meantime, four Sawi villages had moved in to be close to us. They wanted to be close to us, but not close to each other. Warfare broke out almost on a daily basis. Mom became used to rushing out and grabbing me and later my younger brother and pulling us into the relative safety of our thatch-roofed house there. Finally, Dad said to the Sawi men from Kamor village, one of the four, he said, if you don't make peace, we're going to have to move away to somebody who wants to hear the message. He wasn't sure how they could make peace. I mean, how does a treachery idealizing culture ever convince their enemies they're serious about making peace? Oh yeah, you want peace, right. Well, the next morning he heard a tremendous commotion. He thought, oh no, here goes another battle. He rushed out just in time to see a father grab his little baby boy from the arms of his wife, the child's mother, and over the logs and threw them out over to the enemy and give that little baby boy to the enemy. And dad turned to Adi and said, Adi, what's happening? And Adi said, you've been telling us we have to make peace. That's what we're doing. 
Dad said, are they going to hurt that little baby boy? He said, no, they're giving him to the other village. He's going to be adopted by that village, and the peace will only last as long as he lives, so they're going to take as good care of him as they can. Dad thought to himself, this is the strangest thing I've ever heard. A few moments later, another father grabbed his son from the village of Hainam and ran and gave that child to the... So there were two peace children, Tarop teams. But dad also realized as he and mom were praying, not only is this strange, it's also strangely familiar. Two parties at war. One of them, a father wanting so desperately to reconcile himself to the enemy that he's willing to make the ultimate price, ultimate sacrifice, and give his son his only son. And the peace lasting as long as that child lives, doesn't Hebrews say he ever lives to make intercession for us? Why, this is the gospel in a nutshell. Dad went and took a few more days, learned a few more vocabulary words, went back into that same man house, and this time he added a detail. He called Jesus, Mialkodon's Tarob team, God's peace child. And it's this time there was no laughter and joking and there was silence. And then that same warrior in the back who'd cracked the jokes, he said, wait a minute, are you saying Jesus was a peace child? And dad said, yes. He said, why didn't you tell us that the first time? <laughs> dad said, I didn't know that was an important detail. He said, it makes all the difference. The worst thing anybody can do is betray a peace child to death. And you can just see the spiritual scales falling from the eyes, the spiritual hearts of these people. And I had the joy and the privilege of growing up and seeing the truth of one, uh, Romans 1.16, the power of God unleashed in a people group of 3,000 speaking that language. And then to spend years and years since taking that same message, that same game-changing message to a much larger Muslim people group in Southeast Asia and to enable others, churches like yours, to connect the dots and make the difference that makes all the difference in the lives of millions of people all around the world. So brothers and sisters, in conclusion, I uh, today and often carry around in my pocket a little, little puzzle piece. And uh, it's just a reminder of three core ideas for me personally. One is that I'm really small. And God is so big. And the bigger you realize God is, the smaller we feel. But that's okay. And secondly, it's unique. Theoretically, at least, there's not another piece quite like it in the puzzle. It has a special shape. And each one of us has been uniquely designed by God to play a part of the divine drama. You've got your moment on the stage. You've got your line in the book, in the story that God is writing. And then finally, it's significant. Have you ever gotten kind of to the end of putting a family puzzle together and the one, there's one piece missing and you're getting under the cushions on the couch and looking on the rug? Where is that piece? Brothers and sisters, God has given us a great invitation to participate. The Abrahamic franchise, let's give it all we have. God bless you. It's been good being with you here today.